Hi there, listener, and welcome to episode 73 of the Ski Podcast. Uh, firstly, as always, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast, and I'm delighted to add that we've uh, we've just agreed to continue that partnership, so uh, we'll be having a few more features about Switzerland uh, in due course. And uh, listener, if you're joining us for the first time today, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you do have a minute, please give us a review on iTunes, as you know, those algorithms actually do help other people find us. So today we're covering three different time zones in the ski podcast. So I'd like to start off by welcoming my uh, special guests. Firstly, from New Zealand, we have Paul Anderson, who is CEO at NZSki.com. Hi, Paul. How are you? Kia ora, Ian. I'm really well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in the evening for you. And in the morning over in Chamonix in France, we have uh, Claire Burnett, press officer for Chamonix. That's correct. Yes. Hello, Ian. And Nice to, to be on your podcast, and thank you for inviting Chamonix. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. Now, traditionally, we always like to start off by finding out uh, where did you ski or snowboard uh, last? Paul, maybe you'd like to start us off. Well, for me, it was, um, it was Mount Hutt. Mount Hutt was the last of our three resorts to close last season. So, yeah, I would have had a few turns on closing day up at Mount Hutt last October. In October, right. Okay. And what about yourself, uh, Claire? Um, well, uh, I did quite a bit of ski touring last winter, so um, ski touring up to Balm uh, um, and other places around the Chamonix Valley. So, uh, right, so when you say last winter, do you mean like a month ago or something like that? Uh, the last ski tour I did was about uh, three weeks ago, but um, the people are still ski touring now because we still have quite a lot of snow. <laughs> I know it's been such a, an incredible winter. You know, that's one of the, the hardest things when you're in the UK. I do some work, uh, you know, for some different resorts. And I've recently been sharing photos of them doing denegement and clearing the coals. And you can see how deep the snowpack is when they're clearing those roads. I saw one from the Col de Petit Saint-Bernard, which I'll stick in the show notes in La Rosière. And it's more than two people high, the uh, the snow depth there, which is about 2,000 metres, I think, something like that. So really gutting for British people not to yeah. have uh, had the chance to get out onto that snow. But actually, yeah. that, segues, that segues quite well to the uh, to the next uh, uh, little feature I've got here, because, um, you know, we know most people in the UK didn't manage to get out to the Alps this winter. But it doesn't actually mean no one went skiing, because plenty of people actually kind of use their initiative a bit and went skiing in the UK. And even more um, amazingly, um, quite a few people have actually skied in the UK in May. So uh, let's hear from a, a few of our listeners who went skiing earlier this month. Good afternoon, Ian, and a warm welcome from a wet and windy Wales here on Friday the 21st of May for what is realistically a season wrap-up. It was an uncharacteristically dry march with no snow falling on the peaks of South Wales, and my ski partner Chris's quest for a 50-day season took a fatal hit. We managed three days on snow between the 6th and 12th of April, but despite it being the coldest April in Wales since 1922, it was also the driest and sunniest, which meant the ski stayed in the cupboard for the rest of the month. Chris did clock up his 40th day on snow though, which to my understanding is a record for these parts and no mean feat. A cold front moved across the UK over the May bank holiday weekend, and while Scotland and the north of England were experiencing heavy snowfall and long descents, I had to eke out a couple of turns on Penavan and Corn D in the central Brecon Beacons on about as many frozen crystals as there are in my freezer. Still, I was on skis in Wales on the 6th of May, six months after making my first turns for the winter back on the 3rd of November 2020. Not bad for mountains which top out at 886 metres. I finished with 23 days for the winter, some of which are up there with my best days on skis anywhere. To see images and videos of our days out this season, please see my Instagram page at Mike the Snow or type in hashtag ski the beacons in the search bar. Until next time, if it's snowing, I'm going. I was lucky enough to have um, done some ski touring in Kangol a week ago. There was a weather wind there which looks like sunshine, some fresh air the week before and very little wind so I took the opportunity to book a touring course with a company called British Backcountry. So I uh, arrived Friday 7th of May 
in the car park, two or three degrees, snow everywhere, um, skins on in the car park, walked right up to the top. Um, visibility was in and out, bit of snow, bit of fog. And then as we got over the top and transitioned, the uh, skies cleared and uh, blue sky, no wind, quite warm, absolutely fantastic soft snow. Managed to ski right down the other side to the lock where we had lunch and then skinned all the way back up to the top, did, did a couple more runs, came back via, I think it was the coronation wall, and could ski all the way back to the car park. So for the 7th of May in Scotland, given the COVID year we've had, it was a fantastic day out and I consider myself very, very lucky. Hi, um, thanks for the invite. Well, I'd been keeping an eye on the Scottish ski webcams for a couple of months, uh, hoping to rescue a few turns from the end of season. So when it looked like the border would actually open on the 26th of April, my wife and I headed up from London to self-cater for a week and for me to do two days of skiing. I had previously been told that I would need to walk about three quarters of an hour just to get to the snow line, but the lowest access lifts were going to open at Glencoe and Nevis, though not the ski lifts, so I chose the west. On Monday the 3rd, there was low cloud, rain and high wind, so it wasn't until the Tuesday I headed up to the small Glencoe mountain area. There were a couple of inches of new snow, but I gather there was much more at Cairngorm. The access chairlift took me to about 600 metres, which is the normal winter snow line. And then I walked up a track a few hundred metres to the bottom of the wall's toe, where the proper snow started. I skinned up to the top at 1,100 metres, which was in heavy cloud. That didn't make for the easiest first turns of the season. The snow was good, though this being Scotland, the new snow had been blown in places into deeper drifts, leaving some old, harder snow exposed. I skied the main bowl and top of the wall three times, perhaps a kilometre per descent. The bad, bad visibility made me hesitate to try to find the spring and flypaper runs between all the exposed areas of rock, but the track along the ridge had snow on, and so I finally headed out, and after stepping over a lot of smaller rocks, found what I thought might be, and luckily was, the spring run. There were about ten other skiers up the mountain, but I think I may have been the only person who tried it. On the Thursday, I headed up to Glencoe again. I'd intended to try the back bowls at Nevis, but there wasn't enough snow to link them, so it would have been necessary to climb back up where I'd gone down, probably requiring ice axe and crampons to get up the steep top and past the cornice, which seemed somewhat foolhardy on my own. The visibility at Glencoe uh, the second day was better, and there was even a late patch of sun and a brief snow flurry, and a few more people this time. I skied the same two runs with and with advice from a local called Ian, managed to find the famous flypaper run, which is about 45 degrees most of the way down. I made the first tracks on it, and the snow was nice and soft, if slightly heavy. There was a lot of sloughing, which was slightly worrying on my own, but a memorable payoff for the climb. I saw three more people starting to ski it as I picked my way to traverse out across a mixture of snow, moss and stones. In all, I climbed nearly 1,400 metres each day, which is a very unfit 72-year-old I was quite pleased with. OK, back to you, Ian. Thanks to Mike, Greg and David there. Uh, regular listeners will know Mike's voice. He's been on the show a few times and we've spoken about skiing in Wales and skiing in Scotland before. But we've never uh, spoken about skiing in England. And earlier this week, I spoke to Simon Burgess, who went up to the Lake District with his snowboard in May. Right, it's a pleasure to be talking now with uh, Simon Burgess. And, and I'd just briefly like to thank a uh, regular long-term long listener, Andrew Brannan, for bringing this to my attention because I recently watched uh, your video, Simon, where you skied in the Lake District and not just in the Lake District, in the Lake District in the UK in May, which is pretty amazing, I think. How, how was that overall experience? 
It was absolutely unbelievable. Um, I'm sure as many people who are avid skiers or snowboarders uh, would have felt this winter that um, a lot of stuff's been closed uh, and the Lake District Ski Resort at Rays was closed as well. Um, and just waking up to um, the news of snow and that the toe was going to run was just, oh, it was brilliant. Yeah, and what, remind me what date that was then that you went up there. So it was May the 5th um and there was snow up there until may the 7th so went up and did some uh, touring uh, as well around that area right okay because um well just actually for uh, listeners who might not be familiar i'm pretty sure i saw a feature about this place uh rays which is a, a 360 meter uh, tow bar uh in the lake district on ski sunday earlier this year did you see that at all i saw parts of it yeah, and um, I, one of my friends who's also a bit of an avid uh, snowboarder uh, dropped me a link to it. And it's, I've recently moved to Cumbria. So discovering that it's possible to ski at places like Rays mm-hmm. and um, Yad Moss, even over in the Pennines, I'm just excited to get out and explore these places a bit closer to home. And so you knew about the lift, which is, which is called Rays, but it's run by the Lake District Ski Club, I think, right? Yes, all volunteers, a group of people, like really nice community of people up there. And how do you know if it's going to be open? I mean, if there's snow, will it always be open? So, no, it it depends, I guess, on on whether there's volunteers available to run it as well. Um, I think uh, on their website, uh, it actually says they manage in a good year to get 60 days throughout the winter. So it's substantial. Um, You can get some good days up there and tick some off. But there's um, a Twitter account, LDSC webcam. So you can normally see whether uh, there is snow on the toe and around that area. So yeah, it's and I think that I'm right in saying that's like a, a, a live uh, feed, yeah. a live webcam, isn't it? Because I remember looking at it, you know, around that time and seeing people going up the lift. And then, as you say, a couple of days later, that snow had literally melted all away uh, very quickly. Yeah, so it, it updates throughout the day, and um, I'm I'm not sure if they if they still do it, but there used to be a, a phone number uh, that you'd ring up, and they would say whether they're operating and what time. Very old school. Right. Okay. And how long in advance before you went up? Then did you decide? I pretty much planned the day before, so I saw I saw a tweet uh, that said that they were going to run it. And um, and that was it. I did a, a little bit of last minute research because it's not like your normal ski resort you're not going to turn up there and have your apres bar down the bottom and uh, your rental shop it's it's an interesting hour and a bit's walk up to the toe and um, so it's definitely worth people um understanding that um and i was quite lucky because when i turned up i met a lovely lady called calf uh, who walked up with me and told me more about it Okay, and and sorry, there's no way around that. You you literally have to uh, walk a, an hour plus to get to the lift itself. Yeah. yeah. So the members have a car park um, near. There's a YHA in in Glen Ridding. I think it's YHA Helvellyn. But if you're not a member, you, you need to park down by the mines and uh, have a have a good stroll. Even from the members' car park, it's an hour. Um, but I think that's really cool because everybody who's there. Um, is motivated to get there and you know everyone's had to do that walk and it's such a cool community of people up there yeah well people talk about earning your turns and in this case <laughs> you're definitely uh, earning them aren't you when you when you get there I mean I assume the lift isn't isn't free uh, um, you know what's the situation there so you know if if you're a member you can pay uh, 50 or 60 pounds a year and you can use it unlimited amount of time throughout the summer so uh, throughout the winter so whenever it's running for 50 or 60 pounds you have unlimited access unfortunately and especially like this year the list for membership has has gone up and there's a long waiting list i think uh, one of the volunteers told me they're currently at nearly 400 about 370 people waiting for a membership up there so it's popular um but you still can go as as a day guest and as a day guest um you pay 30 pounds um if you're there in the morning and if you want to ski all day however they are flexible with that. If you turn up in the afternoon, um, there were some people being charged, say, £10 for the last couple of hours on the toe um, for those unlucky few that had to work in the morning. 
Um, or on my day, they said, you know, what? it's May. I'm not going to charge you the 30. We're going to we're going to charge you 20. So just go out there and have fun. Great. Even though the conditions look excellent in your video. Oh, yeah, conditions were fantastic. Again, like it's not Japan. It's not meat as a powder, but um, there was fresh snow. It's all ungroomed up there. Um, I think they've got nine runs, uh, which they have on on their map. Um, so there's some nice little areas to explore. Um, and yeah, actually, I I wasn't expecting much. I knew the tow was only 360 meters. I think their longest run is about a mile. Um, but I had one of my favorite ever days. I was I was buzzing. Am I right in thinking that underneath it's it's heather, or are you needing to be concerned about you know the your, your skis or your snowboard with uh, rocks etc. underneath? I might have come across a couple of rocks, um, <laughs> but it depends on where you go. The main runs are, are pretty safe. Um, little bits of of grass here and there might be poking through. If you're a little bit more adventurous and you're straying off to the sides of uh, the what they would call the runs, um, yeah, you might come across the odd rock. You said there were other people there. Would you describe it at all as being busy? <laughs> uh, well, not busy in terms of like a queue at the Le Charbel, uh gondola, <laughs> if you're ever going to Verbier. Well, I think on the day there was maybe 30 or 40 people up there. Um, oh, okay. did, did you have to ever have to wait to get onto the T-bar? No, no. And oh my God, that T-bar. For, for a snowboarder, I know a lot of people don't like um, Pommer lifts anyway, but uh, that Pommer was one of the hardest ones that I've ever gone on because <laughs> it's on a bit of a camber. So right. it's very much a stay on your toe edge and uh, try and stay under the toe. Um but everyone's just up there having a great time. 30, 40 people. Some people just up for the morning, going to work in the afternoon. Some people coming up after a morning of work. Um, yeah, and no lift queues, no lift queues. Yeah, it sounds it sounds great. And also from something that I thought from the, the video, it reminded me a bit of some of the views that you get, uh, for example, from the New Zealand resorts, where you're looking you're looking because you're not really high in the mountains you have views back over the valleys which are more gentle it looks spectacular just like coronet peak uh coronet peak is stunning the look back over um the lakes there and you you can see two lakes from the top of rays you've got Oldswater and you've got Fermit. um it, for anyone that follows any of the stuff that i've done some of the resorts that I love the most are those with those views, Lake Tahoe, the New Zealand resorts, and Ray's is now definitely firmly on that list. Excellent. And, you know, your video was um, extremely professionally done. I'm, I'm uh, assuming that you have a drone of some description that you use. Yeah, uh, I've tried over the last couple of years to make it a little bit more professional. So in the last maybe four or five months, I've picked up um, a Mavic Mini 2, um, which is doing the job. I'm still learning. Uh, so hopefully the footage came out all right. And um, yeah, it looks good. Yeah, well, there's some really nice uh, shots on there. So um, so just to remind people then, if anyone's interested in watching it, they can see it on your uh, YouTube uh, channel. Um, I think probably if they search for Simon Burgess, they'll be able to find it. And you have a website, simonjackburgess.com and social channels as well if people want to track that down obviously i'm going to put the details in the show notes as well and i also uh, discovered in our little chat in the uh, green room that you've uh, skied in china uh, as well so um, i think what we might do is uh, if you're interested we'll have you back on another episode to have a little chat about that from one extreme yeah, to the other from the lake district to uh, to china i guess both uh, you know um the areas that don't get so many visitors yeah, definitely. Skiing in China was an experience in itself. So I'd, I'd love the opportunity to come on and talk about that. Um, and yeah, I would just encourage as many people as possible to go and find some of these places. And if you get a chance next winter, head out to Rays, head out to Yadmos and, you know, explore some of these areas. Cool. Well, that's brilliant, Simon. Thanks very much for coming on and sharing that with us. Thanks for having me. 
But of course, um, as of May 17, we're no longer restricted to the UK and we can legally travel overseas, but it's far from simple. So to uh, talk us through it, uh, I asked Katie Crow from Battleface Travel Insurance to tell us what the current situation is. And you might remember Katie because she was last on the show in episode 71. Uh, hi, Katie. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? Oh, good morning, Ian. I'm great, thanks. Great to be here. Excellent. Now, I think most of our listeners know we've got a traffic light system in place, but it is changing very dynamically. I mean, we're talking today on Friday, the 28th of May. What are the kind of latest headlines and changes? Well, the latest headline this morning, which is a real blow to those wanting to go to France this summer, is that um, France has clarified that non-essential travel from the UK will be banned from Monday, the 31st of May, due to the spread of the Indian coronavirus variant, which is a massive blow. Um, the, the, the officials in France have said that travel to the country should only be allowed if um, you know, it's essential, for example, for bereavement of, or childcare reasons. And arrivals from the UK face seven days in isolation and are required to take several tests. So that's the latest advice on France. Um, and then we've got um, Germany last week imposed a two-week quarantine on the UK on UK arrivals. And Austria has banned direct UK flights from the 1st of June. And this is all because of the increase in infections of the Indian variant in the UK. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen all of these. And obviously, the France one, you know, is definitely uh, disappointing because, you know, it was only a week ago when the EU was just, you know, considering adding the UK to their whitelist of, uh, of countries. But to a certain degree, this isn't any different from us having France on the amber list. You know, effectively, it's like France putting the UK on the amber list. It's the same sort of thing, really. Um, so yeah. I'm kind of hoping that, uh, you know, they're going, you know, I've continually suffered from optimism bias in this, uh, this whole uh, pandemic. But I'm kind of hoping we're going to see that um, there isn't, you know, a huge jump uh in infections in the uk and by the time realistically we're looking at taking france off uh, the amber list at the end of uh, june they'll be doing the same for us <laughs> yeah so, let's uh, hope so have my fingers crossed for that <laughs> obviously we do have countries on the green list yeah uh, at the moment but i think there's a couple of things I'd, I'd like to sort of cover with you in relation to uh, to that and one of them is the fact that you know a country can be on the green list but it's not necessarily um doesn't necessarily have fco advice where uh, travel is is al allowed or recommended yeah absolutely um unfortunately there's no alignment between um the, the traffic light system and fcdo advice at the moment so what the health ministry is saying is very different from uh country risk and so, for example, you've got Israel, it's on the green list at the moment, but not surprisingly, the FCDO advises against all travel to Gaza, um, which is not surprising due to, due to the, the risk there. But yeah, it's very important that re, um, listeners really check on the Gov website to see the up-to-date latest information on FCDO advisories, um, rather than just rely on the traffic light system. And the other thing to bear in mind as well is that actual country restrictions, which, you know, as in, as in France, are bringing in their own specific restrictions on UK travellers. So again, I would urge all listeners to really check with that specific destination advice. Right. OK. I mean, one of the reasons I came across Battleface in the first place was because when I went out to Switzerland in December, uh, the advice was against non-essential travel. And one of the points of Battleface, uh, you know, travel insurance is that you will insure people in those circumstances, right? Absolutely. We're not encouraging people to travel to places the FCDO is advising against, but we are off definitely we offer them the possibility of being covered um, in these countries if they need to be there. We've always provided coverage to destinations that are under FCDOs. Yeah. Okay. And and you mentioned about you know checking the situation. Another thing um, I saw recently is that you've got this kind of database which is up to date, where you can go onto the site and actually check right what is the current situation for each particular country. Absolutely. Yeah. We've just um, launched a new service powered by Sherpa, which gives you details of up to date restrictions and requirements. To a specific country. So if you go onto the website, the Battleface website, and you look under travel restrictions, um, you can then input your um, destination country, where you're traveling to, where your passport's been issued, and you get all the up-to-date specific requirements to travel to that destination. 
So yeah. it's, a, it's an extremely valuable tool. It, well, really valuable because it's it, it, one of the issues about everything is it can be you know, extremely confusing. And, you know, if, in my opinion, if you're legally entitled to travel to a place, then it's up to you to uh, decide on the risks. And if you want to go through uh, the various uh, hoops of getting testing done and things like that, you just need to know exactly what is what? required. Absolutely. And, you know, on the website, it gives you details of restrictions, quarantine policies, health documents you need, COVID testing you'll need to do, whether you have any restrictions during transit, any health documents you need to take with you and whether you need to wear masks, you know, whether they're mandatory in public. So it's really important that travellers check the up to date latest as it's such a fluid environment that they check the latest um, information. It, it certainly is. It's changing the whole time. This podcast is probably going to come out on the 31st of May. And we think within a few days of that, <laughs> we're going to see an announcement about the the possible second wave of, of green list countries, which would come into play on the 7th of June. I'm not sure many will be added or certainly many significant ones will be added. It's really, I think, that date, the 28th of June, which is the one where, uh, you know, we really might see some good changes. That's what I have my fingers crossed well, for. I've also heard um, sources have said that the government has suggested that it's going to give at least seven days notice of countries moving on to the green list. So this would mean that we could potentially get an update when this goes to, goes on air on Monday, the 31st of May. Because that yeah, would be well, I'll tell, yeah. tell you what, if that happens, I'll add in an extra little bit and listener, <laughs> you, you'll suddenly find me uh, talking without Katie here. Well, that, that's brilliant, Katie. Thanks so much for that. It's really helpful. And, uh, you know, things are obviously very dynamic. Maybe we can invite you back on uh, future episodes and you can update us on the situation as it all uh, evolves. That would be my pleasure. Cool. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Ian. Bye. So the travel situation is changing the whole time. Uh, but let's let's turn to our guest now. Um, Paul, um, New Zealand is on our green list, but that doesn't really make any difference. I don't think we're going to be seeing uh, any or many Brits travelling there this summer. But, you know, you're uh, on your way into your uh, winter season. You've got the prospect of lots of Australians uh, joining you. But maybe to start off with, if people aren't familiar with nzski.com, I wonder if you could just tell us which resorts come under your banner. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ian. Um, so NZ Ski, we've got three large resorts in New Zealand, um, large by New Zealand standards. So close to Queenstown, we have Coronet Peak and the Remarkables. And in Canterbury, which is about four or four and a half hours by car up the road, um, close to the major city of Christchurch, we've got Mount Hutt. Um, quite different resorts. Queenstown is a, is a, uh, is a resort and uh, we rely largely on people traveling to resort. Uh, Mount Hutt is more a domestic ski area, um, although it attracts its fair share of international visitors, but it's got a good population base right on its doorstep. Um, we see around 700,000 visitors each season. Uh, most of those are in Queenstown, about 550,000 between the Coronet Peak and Remarkables resorts. And in Queenstown, 30 to 40% of our visit visitors are Australians. So um, Australia is a critical part of our market and we're excited to have our Trans-Tasman travel bubble open and operating. Um, the other thing listeners may not be aware of is access to our mountains. So our mountains, with because of New Zealand's very temperate climate, our snow line sits up at around 12 to 1600 metres above sea level. Um, and our towns are usually down at around 300. So most of our resorts have access roads, uh, which can be between 7 and 13 kilometres um, up the sides of the mountains. And we service those with a, a really capable bus fleet. Um, but most, most visitors actually drive themselves and we've got car parks up around our base area facilities. Uh, I have been lucky enough to go out to uh, New Zealand myself and I've skied in Coronet Peak and the Remarkables and the drive up there is great but the, to me one of the best things I thought perhaps about skiing in New Zealand are the views looking down. Are they, is it Lake Wakatipu is that what it's called? Yeah Lake, Lake Wakatipu it's um, spectacular is one thing traveling a couple of years ago I was up in Lake Louise in the middle of winter and everything as some listeners might be aware, it was completely white. And um, it, 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 the penny dropped for me how temperate New Zealand is because when you stand on the top of a mountain in New Zealand, you look out across 
the white snow fields down the green down to the green hills and a deep blue lake um, so the lakes don't freeze over so it is extremely scenic yeah yeah it's just it's just uh well it was just beautiful i really uh love that and just remind me you mentioned there the uh the is it the snow line between 1200 and 1600 what's the, what's the kind of highest point uh for snow so well our, our mountains the highest is mount hart which runs up to um 2088 meters right um Kronik, Kronik peaks are much lower mountains so it runs between 1200 and 1600 meters um and and remarkable is kind of around the middle there yeah and and what um actually are the season months i mean i know i read earlier today that it's looking uh, possible i think you've got a snow uh, storm coming in and that coronet peak could open early but what's the season that you operate yeah it's usually um early to late, early to mid june all the way through to early october right okay and so when when might coronet peak open i just heard uh, that today yeah we, our scheduled opening date is the 19th of june um, but we've got this big storm coming through and we've had really good snow making conditions. So we're hoping we'll get it open a week earlier on the 12th of uh, June. And you never know, we have our Queen's birthday weekend in the first weekend in June. So um, that would be a real treat for locals if we could get it open for even a day over Queen's birthday weekend. Great. Well, that, that would be very exciting. Now, you mentioned the Trans-Tasman bubble, but let's just track back to last winter. You know, I think everybody knows uh, listening to the podcast that New Zealand, you know, locked down really early and, uh, you know, sealed the borders. So your resorts were, I think, open for most of the winter, the way um, lockdown uh, happened, but domestic visitors only. So how how busy were resorts last winter? Yeah, that's right. We we went into a lockdown in, uh, in uh, April 2020. Um, all the way through the 27th of April, and then heavily heavy restrictions through to mid-May. So the lead into our season was challenging, where we didn't even know whether we were going to be allowed to open. Um, we worked really well with with some other major resorts in New Zealand and created protocols so we could operate safely under what we refer to as Level Two, which is a um, means people can travel. They just need to think about social distancing. As it turned out, on the 8th of June, just four days before opening our first resort, which was Mount Hutt, we moved to level one, um, which is pretty much life as normal in New Zealand. Um, there were no community cases. And at that stage, I don't think we even had our managed quarantine facilities set up. So uh, we brought we into the season at level one. Um, and it was really busy because um, domestically, people couldn't travel. Um, we had some superb uh, media in the in the lead up to the season because I think people really saw ski resorts of a bit of, as a bit of a beacon of hope. They'd been locked in their homes for four to six weeks. Um, we were, we were we were still doing the the good thing of getting people um, buzzing about the upcoming ski season, and they sure came out in force. It was fantastic. So you mentioned before that the international market is thirty to forty percent. Uh, from Australia, um, now, but also there was a bigger domestic market. So how did it compare with the year before? Were you kind of down overall? Yeah, we were. We, we were down that, that 30, 40, 30 to 40% in visitation. What happened was during school holidays, um, it was the, the, the number of New Zealanders skiing actually completely displaced the, the loss of demand out of Australia. But then after school holidays, we really, we really noticed the loss of that big Australian market. Um, and that's where we, we, we had far less visitation um, and we ended up the season about a third down on visitors. Right. Okay. Okay. I mean, relative to, we'll come on to the uh, French resorts, but relative to, uh, uh, you know, Europe, that's actually a pretty good result overall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, it was. We, we were pretty thrilled with the way we went through the season. Um, you know, we're really grateful to have a, a good, strong local base um, who came out in force. Yeah. And I think, you know, when people have had lockdown and we're going to touch on this in a minute, uh, there is this this uh, pent up demand. You know, people really do want to make the most of their lives and, and do what they uh, can. Uh, 
and obviously it's it's big news uh, that Australians are going to be keen to uh, head back to the uh, the, uh, the New Zealand snowfields. I did see a survey uh, earlier today, which was looking at the number of searches, and I saw searches are up 52% on uh, pre-COVID levels for Australians looking at uh, New Zealand ski resorts. Uh, Are bookings looking strong at this stage? Yeah, they are. They're looking really strong. Um, We notice that for most of our products aren't demand limited. So um, just ski passes and so on, we don't require people to book in on, on certain days. So, and because of that, we don't, we we can't get much of a read into pre-bookings. Um, but for products where you do need to book in, like snow sports lessons, um, we've seen really heavy early bookings. And also our, our accommodation partners in Queenstown particularly are telling us that the hotels are full, um, certainly through school holidays, but uh, getting good bookings into uh, August and September also. Great. Well, that that is uh, really good news, and it, it, we'll yes. come on to we'll come on to Europe in due course. But certainly, one of the clients uh, I work for, Le Ski uh, Chalet Holidays, they're reporting they're seventy five percent full for next season. And I, you know, I'm, I have right. suffered from optimism bias, but I'm very hopeful that next season is going to be uh, a really good one. Just on the slopes, Paul, are there going to be any changes? Do you have any, you know, social distancing or limited capacity for lifts or is everything going to run as normal? At this stage, yeah, pretty much as normal. The main difference I think people will see is that we've got a government advisory to wear masks on public transport. So we'll be asking our guests on buses and shuttles to wear masks. Um, But once they're on the mountain um, under under level one, there are no restrictions. So we don't we don't have to limit demand. We don't have to manage our cafes and restaurants uh, for physical distancing. If we go to level two. Um, and we're prepared for that, then that's when we've got some additional things come in. And there's there's really three things. One is contact tracing is mandatory. So we asked all, all guests to either scan in or they're using our lift products so we, we can identify if they've been at resort. Um, the second one is social distancing. And we have um, green and yellow zones. So green zones, social distancing not required. Um, but yellow zones, there'll be managed social distancing. So that's lift queues or anywhere where there's a congregation of people. And the third thing is just increased hygiene and cleaning uh, protocols for, for us. Right. So there's no uh, you know, reduced capacity or, or anything like that. And no. Queenstown itself, uh, I, I don't know if NZ, uh, I think you just operate the, uh, the lifts yourself, but Queenstown is... There's a lot going on in Queenstown. There's so many other activities you can do. And obviously in winter, maybe there's slightly fewer. But will all of those kind of be going ahead as well, do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think that there are a few who have hibernated um, since the our, our summer holidays because um, there hasn't been enough domestic demand. And, and most of them are kind of put, put their businesses into hibernation, waiting for the ski season. And then when there's more people in town, they'll, they'll start to operate again. Right. Okay. Well, it sounds, it sounds very encouraging. It's very exciting. I know a couple of, um, you know, European resorts are opening up uh, shortly for some glacier skiing. Uh, But the fact that you're going to be opening, I think around the same time, actually, I think does Alp is due to open on the 19th of June, or it might be the 12th of June, and then Val d'Azer the 19th of June. Um, And what I'm really interested in is like getting that message out there that people are skiing again and they're enjoying themselves and they're uh, skiing safely. So I wish you, you know, all the best uh, uh, for this winter. And thanks so much for giving us, you know, that insight into snow sports on the other side of the world. If Queenstown is the adrenaline capital of New Zealand, then the adrenaline capital of the Alps is, uh, is Chamonix. Uh, hi Claire thanks for joining us it's really good hi. to have you on the on the podcast listeners I think probably know that I'm a, a, you know I'm just such a big fan of Chamonix you know I've skied there in the winter many times uh, I live there through the summer uh, one year and uh, I go out there I've been out there many times in summer probably I might even prefer it in summer but we have had some exciting news or encouraging news because uh, with Deconfinement and unlockdown, I prefer that word Deconfinement, <laughs> the lifts uh, started working again in Chamonix, I think, um, on the 19th of May. How, how's that going so far? Yes, the 
Aguidimidi lift, which is obviously our um, major um, sightseeing lift uh, because it goes up to uh, 3,800 uh, meters, um, opened on the 19th um, of May. Um, so the uh, there are certain um, health um, social distancing uh, restrictions and the the uh, the uh, lifts run with 50% capacity, but that's okay because it's not a, it's not a particularly busy period. There was quite a frenzy uh, as soon as the uh, lift opened with all the um, uh, young free riders. Well, not just young, all ages going up uh, to the Aiguille de Midi to ski the Valley Blanche or to ski various couloirs and um, and of course the snow conditions are so amazing that it is quite tempting yeah i actually saw i might drop that in the show notes uh some videos that have been shot by people taking a, a different a couple of different routes uh down from the aguida midi because obviously you know that it's been a good season and if you get up to three thousand eight hundred meters you can get some really good quality uh snow as well now you mentioned that it's running at 50 percent capacity at the moment i believe the plan uh, which has been you know outlined is to increase that to to 65% from, I think it might be mid-June, and then 100% from, sorry, right, 65% from the 9th of June, yeah, and then 100% uh, before the end of June? Yeah, uh, the, 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 the sort of key dates, <clears throat> sorry, are the uh, 9th of June and then the uh, 30th of June, when we should, by 30th of June, if all goes according to plan, we should sort of come out of the lockdown um, pretty much uh, completely for the summer months yeah well we're certainly uh, looking forward to that and so in chamonix you know we've got the agri the midi cable car but it's also the montanvert lift i think the uh, um or the, maybe there's some work going on on that but it's going to open yeah, shortly medaglas um cog railway opens on the 29th of may um and then the other lifts open on the um between the 5th and the 12th of june but of course that opens up the whole sort of mountainside so for for activities like you know mountaineering paragliding um mountain biking it makes everything so much uh, more accessible yeah exactly well that is going to make a, a lot of difference now let, let's track back a little bit then to um to last winter you know this is the first time the lifts have have turned or been allowed to turn since the uh, since the autumn i guess how has chamonix been through this saison blanche what's the atmosphere been like in resort um, well, the it's been much quieter, obviously, but the atmosphere is still, it's always buzzing in Chamonix. So, um, I mean, obviously, the, the big losers have been the lift company because um, they had absolutely no income whatsoever. Um, but people have uh, turned their attention to, uh, to discovering different activities. So I mentioned ski touring, which has been incredibly popular. The, the, the only sort of um, uh, uh, the obstacle to, to, to more people ski touring was the fact that there weren't enough touring skis because all the, the hire shops had just sold out um, or, you know, they, they had no more rentals. But it's, um, that was really interesting because we have three itineraries in the Chamonix Valley um, where, which are more or less um, uh, prepared and made safe. So there's one um, departing from Les Ouches, there's one departing from the foot of the uh, um, Grand Monte station in Argentière, and another one from um, the village of La Tour up to Bain. And um, those were just so popular. And it was a good introduction to people who never toured before because they felt completely safe and there were mounting guides um, stationed at the foot of each of these itineraries to give people assistance and advice um, which was a, a nice gesture from um, the company de guide yeah um, i think I, I i mentioned uh in a previous uh episode it might have been the last episode of the ski podcast that uh you know i've been enjoying people skiing vicariously this winter because i follow i have lots of friends who live out in the alps and uh, looking at them on strava and seeing them doing all of their ski touring uh etc 
And we had, um, I think, Mark Seaton is a mountain guide from Chamonix. Mm-hmm. He was on the podcast a while ago talking about how all his ski touring equipment had sold out. But we also had um, Bethany Garner on an earlier episode of the podcast who lives down in Solange. But she's been doing a lot of cross-country skiing this winter, and that's also become incredibly popular, I believe. And, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. equipment has been selling out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's that's quite the the upside of um, of the uh, um, of all you know the sort of COVID consequences is that people have discovered different activities that they would n- not normally have done, and it's also given people more time just to enjoy nature and to I- enjoy the Alps and to perhaps have more family time. You know, there were um, toboggan tracks absolutely everywhere um and um so lots more family time i would say and um, and then the other thing is um snowshoeing that's been incredibly popular and i have um uh, a very good friend who's a, a ski instructor and of course so she her work she's also um a mountain leader and she spent um the whole winter guiding um snowshoeing trips and she said it she really enjoyed it there was skiing um, for for kids and beginners because the beginners uh, areas were able to remain open, you know, sort of kindergarten and um, and um, <clears throat> just just the very easy slopes where um, they they have um, little toe lifts. So there was some activity um, for skiing and particularly for for small children learning. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, I know the magic carpet things were allowed to open, etc. And it was it was great on a number of the webcams, you know, during vacances scolaire, I was able to look and you see people actually learning to ski, kids learning to ski, which is really encouraging. But most of the winter, well, all of the winter in, in France, anyway, you've been restricted to the domestic market. And, you know, I understand that even, you know, in that peak season, the occupancy was probably, you know, floating around uh, maybe 30 to 50 percent kind of levels yeah uh, yeah i would say on it depending on the periods i would say between 30 and 50 percent we obviously um chamonix depends on the foreign markets which represent in winter 50 percent of our overall um occupancy um so we were of course deprived of those markets um there was still quite a lot of um uh, you know, British people in Chamonix because some people chose to relocate and to um, uh, work from Chamonix, um, you know, sort of homework from Chamonix. Um, and then we have a, about between 10 and 15 percent um, uh, permanent occupancy of, uh, of uh, British residents. So, um, but even a lot of these British residents run small uh, travel companies um, or chalet companies. And of course, their market changed as well, because instead of hosting uh, British visitors, primarily, um, they had a lot of uh, French clients. So that was it, that was a sort of um, a change in, in uh, position as well. Interesting. And um, uh, and so, of course, we had former far more um, French visitors that we would ha- normally have um, and people that came to the mountains for the first time. Um, a, a positive thing as well, because it was introducing more people to uh, to uh, just to the Alps in winter. Sure. And and Chamonix is an unusual mountain resort, a lot like Queenstown, I guess, in that I think it's busier in summer than it is in winter. And you know, people come to do all sorts of activity. But I saw this week that uh, it looks like Chamonix are running a promotion that they ran last summer as well, which I think is called uh, Village Vacances Grande Nature. Do, do you want right. to give us? Did I get that right? <laughs> Excellent. Yes, you did. Perfect. Perfect. Cool. Yeah, so do you want to give us a, a rundown on what that is? Uh, yes, so the this is essentially free activities during the summer months, so July and August, uh, during the French uh, school holidays, um, for uh, people staying in Chamonix. So for somebody staying um, uh, between three and four nights, they can have two free activities. For somebody staying um, five nights and more, they can have uh, three free activities. So this is an operation which is financed by the tourist office, um, and we've allocated a very significant budget um, to this um, program. But it's 
basically thanking um, <laughs> thanking people for their um, for, for choosing Chamonix and ensuring that they get the very best experience from their stay. And it's also a way of helping local uh, businesses during these difficult times. Yeah, and it's a great way to get people through the door. And if I recall, you know, there's a lot of really good activities in it. it includes things like, uh, you know, rafting and uh, climbing lessons and mountain biking and all sorts of things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, EV mountain biking is really popular as well. Uh, yeah. So uh, people can go on guided outings uh, with an e-bike, but they can also just um, uh, uh, come and um, get an e-bike for free. Um, and um, it's rock climbing, paragliding, well, it, par introduction to paragliding, then there's themed hikes, uh, tree adventure parks, hiking, um, sophrology treks, all sorts. <laughs> cool. Well, you know, there's a lot to look forward to. And as I said, you know, I'm a massive fan of Chamonix in the summer. So uh, that's great, Claire. Thanks for sharing all that uh, with us. Unfortunately, we have had a bit of news this morning here. There's uh, France have introduced their kind of own, I guess, uh, amber traffic light for uh, the UK. But, um, you know, as it's the same in retrospect at the moment, I think probably we're looking for hopefully um, after June 28th, uh, British uh, people will be able to go over to France. And I'm certainly hoping to, because if all goes well, I'm going to be there. Um, I'm doing the or have a place in the UTMB uh, trail race in August. And if all goes well, I'm going to come over for a recce uh, in July. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, to meet up then. Excellent. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you. We've got, um, it's nice to see the agenda filling up and uh, everything kicking off. And the, the first event is the a new uh, Chamonix Film Festival, and that starts on the 9th of June. Okay, well, we look forward to that. Just now, I'd like to uh, to thank Matt Hayes, uh, John M and uh, Andrew Brannan uh, and Nick D, all of whom uh, bought me a cuppa since our last episode. Uh, Andrew very kindly said you're doing such a professional job. It's a very enjoyable listen. Uh, Nick said uh, many thanks for this, uh, for the great work you do and putting out the best podcast going, which is which is very uh, kind of him and uh, john's only came in this morning he just says thank you uh, you've kept my ski passion going through this tough year and my long covid illness sorry to hear about that uh, john you're a legend so that's very uh, kind of you if you enjoy the uh, ski podcast you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast and uh, as i mentioned earlier about giving us a review i'd like to thank well, whoever the user is called ski 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 for their review did that on uh, on itunes which is a uh, very kind of them and they said thoroughly 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 enjoyable podcast um noticeable improvement recently uh, one of the few things that's been keeping me going through a winter with no skiing uh, keep up the good work so that is very kind of you whoever you are and uh, don't forget, listener, if you'd like some uh, ski podcast stickers for your helmet or skis or phone, then uh, just email the ski podcast at gmail.com with your address and we'll post them out to you for free. And uh, don't forget that you can still get yourself a free ticket for the National Snow Show at the Birmingham NEC in October using the code uh, Snow Ski Podcast. So uh, coming up, we'll have another episode in a couple of weeks' time, I hope. Uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, the Pat Sharples Ski Podcast special came out recently. He is the head coach of uh, GB Snow Sport. Uh, have a, a listen to that one. But until our next episode, you can follow me at Skipedia and the show at The Ski Podcast. And we're on Instagram as well. And I'd like to thank my uh, special guest today, Paul Anderson from nzski.com. Thanks very much for joining us from the other side of the world, Paul. My pleasure, Ian. That was really interesting listening, and to Claire too. Cool, that's great. And also to Claire, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, nice to meet you, Paul. And uh, as always, thanks to Switzerland Tourism for their support. And finally, I'd like to thank you, listener, for sharing this time with us. So until next time, goodbye. I really enjoyed this week's episode and in fact this winter I've really enjoyed talking to everybody about uh, skiing for the podcast and putting together all the different episodes. It does take a bit of time, I think I just worked out that that episode took me eight hours to do. So listener, if you enjoy the ski podcast you're very welcome to uh, buy me a cuppa just to say a quick thank you at buymeacoffee forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.